0: When we talk about sustained success in sports, we tend to go to the same names the Patriots, the Spurs, the Red Sox, Manchester United. But in Christchurch, New Zealand, there's a rugby team called the Crusaders who've won eight championships since 2000 and have only finished outside the semi finals three times in that span. Colin Mansbridge is the CEO of the Crusaders. And in this episode, we go deep into their unique culture, talk about their breakdancing coach, how the club responded to the Christchurch terror attacks, and what Colin has learned after transitioning to rugby from 20 years of leadership in the corporate sector. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Colin Mansbridge, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Cody. It's great to be here, mate. Let's
0: jump straight in this way. A lot of people, you know, my audience tends to be more North American centric, and a lot of people are familiar with the All Blacks and their success. And, you know, we're talking in the middle of the Rugby World Cup when we're recording this, but, you know, a lot of people here might not be as familiar with, you know, the enduring success of the Crusaders and your organization. So, Maybe let's just start there. I'd love for you to just kind of articulate, you know, who you are and and what the last you know twenty years has looked like for the Crusaders. Because as an outsider, even to to the rugby world, it, it's quite remarkable what you've been able to achieve,
1: Cody. If if you look back, Super Rugby's been in existence nearly a quarter of a century now, <clears throat> and um, Canterbury Rugby was uh, you know well over a hundred years old, and um, and we ended up. Um, uh, starting initially when Super Rugby launched in '96 as the Canterbury Crusaders, in 1996 um, we won two of eleven matches and one draw and ended up bottom of the table. Um, and uh, and then the following season we ended up with a, a guy called Wayne Smith, who's synonymous with uh, All Black rugby as well. Um, and uh, and Robbie Deans was in a management role and um, and spent some time. Uh, with the Crusaders then. From, from that period on, um, it, it was, there, there was almost like a, a back to uh, who are we, where do we come from, what do we stand for um, in 1997? Um, and interesting, we have one of the uh, seminal Crusaders uh, works here as our GM high performance, a guy called Angus Gardner, and he tells me the story about the following season, how the team went out and connected with community, um, how they travelled around the top of the South Island, which is our catchment area here in, in New Zealand, um, and then sort of uh, from that moment on, um, this sort of start from culture first. I know it's not necessarily trendy to say that, um, or it is trendy. Start from culture first, and just um, built from from there on in. Last year, we got back end of last year, um, an outfit out of Australia called Gainline Analytics, and. And a funds management firm, Platinum Asset Management, uh, did a bit of research on um, sporting businesses in Australasia, and they were trying to keep it Australian focused but because of the nature of a, a number of the competitions, they had to look at Australasia. And they they ended up over 25 year period, they analysed uh, 75,000 odd matches, you know, 222 teams, 14 sporting codes, and they looked back over the last 25 years, and and they did this statistical Analysis Z scores in each competitions and then across the competitions, um, the gap between number one and two team um, in that ranking was bigger than the gap between two and five and and obviously that ended up the Crusaders. So that they struggled to give us the award as the best sporting franchise in Australasia over the last 25 years. But I think because of uh, the fact that we continually Do well uh, in terms of appearing in finals or winning finals. Uh, We've won 10 titles in that time, 14 finals, 19 semi-finals and two three-peats. And one of the reasons that you see, you know, I'd I'd go so far as to say one of the reasons you see such a strong All Blacks side is probably because we've contributed over that period an average of 10 of the All Blacks uh, per year. most of the coaching staff and, uh, and many of the skippers over that time. So, so it is a pretty, it's a pretty special place to be, um, Crusaders territory. And, um, and yeah, uh, from that first 1997 onwards, is is, um, you know, the core of, uh, where we've come from. And I think we stuck true to some of those principles and values, uh, developed in those days.
0: Yeah. It's a remarkable run of success. And, you know, again, as, as someone from, you know, I was, I was born in Canberra and I watched the Brumbies uh, come through and I've had Ben Darwin's been on the show. Uh, I'm so familiar with, with Gainline's work and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just, you know, as, as someone who is trying to build a culture uh, himself as, you know, the head coach of, of Canada's Aussie rules program and, and someone who has a show about it and, and, and really studies culture and leadership and, and team dynamics closely. It's just remarkable what you guys have been able to do over such a prolonged period in such a competitive landscape. Just so the, the listeners are aware, what are the, the roster rules in super rugby? Where do you draw from? And, and just explain that for us a little bit.
1: So what we uh, basically we run a squad of uh, um, uh, 38, which includes um, 32 full um, squad members and six what we call draft contracts, um, and uh, and that's uh, centrally managed from uh, New Zealand Rugby. Centrally managed that, so every uh, squad looks the same. Um, we our own. Uh, uh, Most of our players come through our academy, so we're the one super franchise uh, in New Zealand that runs our own academy. Many others are run in the provincial unions that feed them, but we run our own here. Uh, We have an academy based in um, uh, Christchurch here and one in Nelson, and we take sort of 10 to 15 players uh, each year into those academies. Um, A lot of the players come from a lot of local. Uh, but but we also do attract some players from other parts of the country. We get a number of Aucklanders will, will come down, down here or, or North Islanders, and they'll join our academy program. Mm-hmm. They'll tend to spend somewhere between two to three years sort of in the academy, and then they'll come out and and eighty percent of those players go or eighty five percent go on to play professional rugby of, of some description of our own roster. Somewhere between seventy and eighty percent come from our own academy. So the young men who have been through this sort of a two to three year induction program and that the, uh, the, the balance will end up in, in other super squads or, or, um, or, or other regional championship teams um, a, around the country. So we theoretically we should be uh, contributing somewhere in the order of 20% of the players uh, in, in the national comp, given they're one of five New Zealand teams. Mm -hmm. But we tend to, it tends to be closer to 30 or slightly in excess of 30% of the players playing in the super competition come from, from our academy or or outside of our academies.
0: And and obviously, you know, that, that lends itself to that kind of competitive advantage in the, you know, again, talking of, of Ben's work around dynamics and, and, you know, having players come through from the same age brackets and, and the same region. But uh, yeah, just quite foreign to particularly the big sports in North America where, you know, there used to be that kind of model. So like the Montreal Canadians used to grab players from Quebec and Toronto would grab players from Ontario and and that's kind of morphed into the, you know, the modern draft and players going all over the place.
1: Yeah, I think that that stuff that Ben talks about, you know, the game line thing about cohesion and, um, you, you know, you often hear that story, don't you? You take the star out of one uh, one squad and you drop them into another and they're, they're no longer a star. And we, we see a number of uh, great New Zealand players sometimes get sucked out of a, a system here and dropped into Europe mm-hmm. and they, they're still a great player they always were, but they might not deliver quite the Um, results or performance that that they've been seeing delivered in in New Zealand. We see a number of French owners complain about uh, the contribution of their New Zealand um, acquisitions. I think the challenge is that, that, you know, if you take rugby's a team sport and and it makes a lot of sense that you've got to know what's happening inside, outside, where you fit into the system, how you contribute, uh, and you can't just do that by Sucking one player out and throwing them into a, into a foreign system and expecting them to perform to the same standard they have. I think that's what we've learned through our academy is that as our players come through and get developed, they come out and they've learned a, a way of playing and a culture and, and what we're about, and, and they learn to connect with those around them. So by the time they're starting to play their first or second game, first or second cap for the Crusaders, that they, it's just not as daunting a task. It's not sort of sucking somebody out and dropping them in and saying, do your best. They, they know a lot about the system before they participate fully in it.
0: Yeah, I love that model. And I often wonder what the North American sports would be like if they had kept that model. where And, you know, the players would come through, you know, the Maple Leafs would have kind of their, their pathway through to the senior team. And I think it would just be really interesting as a case study to see what that would be like. Even speaking from experience, like my playing experience, the the most cohesive teams that I was a part of were that kind of pathway team where we played together for for years and years, and there was just yeah there was that cohesion, and there was just it added something extra. Whereas yeah, I mean we see it all the time here: the players that go from the New England Patriots to the next team, it's just there's very few that actually live up to that billing.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? This what. what... We've been through the analysis in in this last season. There's been a couple of high-profile signings across different clubs this year. And, And so one of the things our own board here has considered is that the choice between investing in talent development or an academy versus roster build. And my own sense is that if you can build an academy or you can build a talent pipeline, it seems to me that all the evidence suggests you get a better output than trying to uh, buy a roster, but that's not the way that it's, it's professional sports evolved more towards the roster building than the talent building, mm-hmm. and it's maybe it's like one of the fundamental problems with economics, isn't it? You know, the short term, that the short term mindset thinking that we see in business, uh, that the CEO who's required to deliver results next next half versus over the next decade, and you end up in this uh, this pressure for performance next week, and and, and you, you just get into this downward spiral. To do that, you have to buy marquee players. They cost you a lot more. It means you invest less in your academy or your development, and then before you know it, you've got nobody coming through, so you have to go and buy marquee players again. But they're not cohesive because you brought them all over from everywhere, and they're not in a system, and then suddenly it's a self-reinforcing um, prophecy that, uh, you're having to just spend more and more and more on the wrong thing versus sort of building your your talent pipeline and, and your academy system. Um, we, as I said, we spent quite a bit of time this year uh, analysing that. We've stuck with our academy um, and there has been no pressure to think about is that the right model? So, um, yeah, I, I suspect most sport businesses go through the same process uh, hopefully, consciously, but maybe unconsciously, time and time again.
0: Yeah, well, I followed the Premier League very closely, and I'm fascinated this year by Chelsea with their transfer ban and and actually playing quite well at the moment with you know, because they're forced to commit to their academy and mm. and their academy products because they can't bring any players in. So I'm just yeah, I'm really curious to see how it pans out. And yeah, just because it's it's a, a rare occurrence where a team can't bring anyone in particularly a team with money. So they have the resources to be able to go out and buy. And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to really watch it flesh itself out over the year and see how these, these guys continue to come together and mm. eventually not. But uh, yeah, it's just mm. such a high profile example of it's playing out in front of us. And, and so it's going to be interesting to watch. So three years ago, uh, Scott Robertson, comes in as the coach. The club haven't won for about eight years, I think. Uh, and there's been, you know, some natural disasters in the area. Most people have been familiar with the earthquake and, you know, the club had some icons retire. Scott comes in and kind of recommits to that internal culture that you were talking about, to focus on togetherness. And then you've just you talked about one of the three peats you've just come off uh, winning the third of that three peat. So extraordinary turnaround. You kind of saw the, the tail end of that, but I'd love for you to kind of tell us more about Scott because I consider him to be, you know, one of the premier, if we were doing a power ranking of head coaches in the world, he's got to be in the top couple over that, that span. So I'd love you just to kind of tell us about him and his impact and rebuilding that culture. Um, Cause it, not that it had skewed, but you hadn't been seeing the results for, for you know, almost a decade.
1: Mm. It, it, it is interesting. And he'd be the first person uh, to talk about building on the legacy of others. And he is very special. And I'll speak to him in, in a moment. The, the, he would start from a position though, that there were a couple of moments under say, Todd Black had his leadership where, um, you know, once in 2000, after the earthquakes, we went a whole season and we didn't play one home game because we didn't have a home. And we were we still had um, aftershocks happening. So it was quite rattling for players and their families. And so the players essentially spent the whole year on the road. And we got beaten by the Reds uh, in Brisbane in the final. And, you know, there's a couple of points in, in it. And um, and then a few years later against the Waratahs, you know, one penalty was the difference between a, a win and a loss. So in many respects... Uh, Todd was you know inches away from um, two championships under his own tenure but that's the respect that somebody like razor who we Scott that we call razor that, that, that's one of the um, uh, respects that he shows for the legacy that he's inherited mm-hmm. um, the, the thing I love about him he's he, he's he's not just an optimist because sometimes optimism can be seen as a little bit in, in, uh, irrational but I, I came across that Don Woden saying on the weekend, things work out best for those who make the best of how things work out. And that's that's razor to a T. He's, he he gets something put in front of him and he'll deal with it differently than anybody else would deal with it because he starts from this amazing mindset um, situation. So if I think about um, uh, uh, load management, so leading into the World Cup uh, New Zealand rugby and, and the All Black coaches obviously very keen to manage the loads of players playing in the super competition. And as that start, conversation started to arise, a lot of super clubs were a bit frustrated by it and some of the coaches got a bit frustrated. Scott, very early on, started talking about, wouldn't it be great if I could be uh, in some way helpful to a player winning uh, a three-peat in terms of super championship and then go on to win a World Cup um medal. I'd be so proud if I could help somebody do both. And then imagine how good it would be for those young men who are coming out of our academy and are going to have to fill some of those holes. Um, gee, they're going to enjoy making their contribution to this this same uh, process of, of two sets of medals. And so he very quickly, uh, optimistically um, t- t- took that opportunity, whereas For many coaches, they were very challenged by not having the best roster available, and 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 thinking about those things. Whereas Scott, as soon as he decided that he wanted to um, just deal with what was in front of him, he turned it into actually this is enabling us to be better. And um, and I think you know you see coaches at the World Cup now, um, Rugby World Cup now, and some of them are struggling with uh, they get thrown a problem and they struggle with the problem. My sense is in that environment, uh, Scott would reframe that problem and say, right, how does that help me be better um, because I've had to go through that problem? The, the, the situation this year with the terror attack, you, you know, yeah. that would very easily have rattled a number of teams. It was horrendous uh, through March, April here. Um, but he, he then started to talk about how can we represent our community? So what can we do to inspire people to feel better after going through something of that nature. And that's, that's the sort of person he is. He's, he's amazing in terms of being able to reframe and see a problem as an opportunity. He's also a, he's, you know, the term servant leader gets bandied about a bit. But when you, um, when you truly are desperate for your team to be the best they can possibly be, and, it, and it's completely authentic, um, yeah, he's a bit of an out there character, and you see him dancing after championship finals, and he's you'll see him waves the crowd up, and all those things. He's a wonderful man to be around, but those things, um, those things aren't necessarily about him. They're about how can we get best off team, and he'll he'll do stuff that that the dancing, you know, the break dancing thing is very much a commitment that he's made to those players. Um, and you know, and and it's 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 a real, very serious ritual. Um, and he, he happy to sort of uh, you know do some pretty average dancing, frankly, but to demonstrate <laughs> to, to demonstrate how much he cares about them and um, and doing his part. So um, he's yeah, a very caring person. He knows all of the players, all of their family history, uh, partners, uh, kids. He's uh, yeah, he knows everything about every body and he just um and he, he's eternally optimistic he's a great person to be around
0: how has that changed your leadership style so as you get to watch him go about it how has that kind of you know forced you to look at at the way you react to to problems or uh you know choose to see positives rather than negatives has it really made you kind of look at yourself because i know for me i i get so much out of watching other coaches coach and I just pick up little bits and pieces. So, yeah, how has that helped you and your leadership style?
1: Uh, uh, very um, directly was the, um, you know, post the terror attacks. We, we uh, Obviously, we um, we encountered some brand issues um, uh, uh, associated with that. There are people starting to call the question, our iconography, combination of iconography, name, and those sorts of things. So we've we we, um, we we've been undertaking a brand review. Um, and so a, a lot of people, a lot of friends and colleagues and, and business acquaintances um, at the back end of this year would come up to me and they'd say, uh, gee, um, I'm not sure that was the job that you applied for uh, when you were all excited uh, and first appointed to the CEO role. Um, how have you found it? And, and the interesting the interesting thing is um, I've probably made more friends, I've connected with more people from more backgrounds uh, as a result of what we've been through. So uh, the local um, Islamic community, I've had to be connected with them both here in Christchurch and in, in Auckland um, in terms of uh, people who have opinions and giving me their opinions. Uh, for a start, that it was... Um, you might approach it in a slightly defensive mindset, but the more that people engaged and the more that you saw it as an opportunity to connect uh, with your community, suddenly it's a very different conversation. It's less threatening. It's more uh, consultative and there's more dialogue. Uh, and so, yeah, I, 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 I now look back on this year as one of, uh, from an opportunity perspective of connecting um, better and if you see the way that the, um, the our community here reacted, it, it, you see the best in people. You sometimes see the worst, but you also see the best in people. Now I've had the opportunity to see the very best in people. Uh, those who have uh, opinions on on one side, and those who have opinions on the other, good people at their core, both. And I, I think that's you know that that's through being around a guy like Razor, that you just you reframe some of those. Things rather than see them as uh, as something you have to sort of hunker down and throw the uh, the, the defence mechanism up. You just uh, get out there and engage with people. So yeah, he, he's been very very effective. My relationship with with the club internally, it would take it would have taken me maybe three or four years to have built the connections with the players and the management and the board and those sorts of things that actually I, I built very, very quickly as a result of um, what we've had to have gone through this year. So again, it's, you know, in many respects, it's uh, it's quite enabling when, when you're around somebody who thinks like that and demonstrates how it can make your life a whole lot better.
0: That's fantastic. I love that. You mentioned the, the uh, brand review there. I'd love to touch on that for a second because yeah, I mean, the story is obviously the name crusaders and the connotations behind it and, and whether that's still relevant today, but, you know, talking of kind of legacy and and all these different things and, you know, you know, the whole start with why kind of movement that, that we've been in with organizations and teams and, and linking, you know, the iconography that you talked about with, you know, the brands and the community and, and, the words and culture, uh, you know, it, it's not as simple as just kind of changing the name and, and continuing on. Is it like, you know, it, it's, you know, there's deep rooted um, things within the whole community and, and the rugby community, and the outside community that uh, you're going to have to consider, aren't you? It, it's, it's actually going to be uh, quite an interesting process. And I'm sure a learning process to go through this review and, and say, yeah, do we want to continue on with this name?
1: So, so that, that's the thing, Cody. Is it, is it has forced us to be a little bit introspective for a while. So, what what we did was with New Zealand Rugby. We we um, we did a bit of research at the uh, a couple of months after the uh, event, and the research that was uh, fairly unanimous that um, that that the broader community did not want to see um, any change to uh, to the brand or what we do, so that they sort of. Most polls had sort of fifty through to seventy percent saying change nothing, and that's a scientific poll um, or even just open polls. Um, A a, a few, a smaller percentage were saying change something, and then you know, sort of ten to twelve percent were saying you know throw everything out and start again. So that that was sort of that was the, the branding, sort of brand feedback. But the research firm that we engage at that time also said to us, look, the, the, you always said that after about a quarter of a century, after 20, 25 years, it's time to do a brand review. So you should sit down and do that brand review now and, and start from scratch. So but that's what we have done is we've gone back in and, and almost looked at our DNA and start with the why. And, um, and, and it's quite interesting. One of the things we've learned is that um, – uh, w- what we stand for and and what the brand stands for today. So things like um, a, a connection, uh, um, so shared understanding, being very inclusive, uh, shared enjoyment both amongst players and uh, and fans, and then belonging or, or, or a place that you can call home. That was a, a key theme that came through. The resilience thing, you know, we've been through natural disasters and those things, yeah. but it's not just about getting up, it's about, you know, being, you know, grit and determination and those things. So connection and resilience and the sense of identity. Um, So razor is a good example of that. Somebody who can, you know, be themselves in an environment where the team still reigns, but you don't have to sacrifice who you are to be part of that team. So these themes of connection, resilience and identity Um, and success, ironically, was the lowest ranking Criteria. So success is almost seen as a consequence of getting those other things right. So we talked about what we've learned through this brand review process that it's about for each other is sort of the underlying theme. That if you're connected, you're resilient, and you've got this really strong sense of identity, that then one of the things you can do is start to sort of behave for each other. That's a sort of a core. And then out of that, um, you know, you get things like cohesion and um, and all those other things we've talked about before. And then ultimately, you, you you know, you end up with results because people are better connected, feel more resilient and, and cohesive. So, so it's been a, a wonderful experience that we've been through. We're, we still haven't finalised what the brand by the end of this year will have got to that point. It'll be a joint decision between the New Zealand Rugby Boards and the, and the Crusaders Board. But we've um, it has the notice to go back and and understand exactly, uh, um, you know, who we are and what we stand for. So, um, yeah, very good.
0: Yeah, fascinating process to go through uh, regardless of, you know, the outcome, uh, I'm sure, and and especially with that validation piece because it's it's so easy for organisations to say, you know, these are the things that we value, but where you get that external research and there is a community element to it as well, that must have been really enlightening.
1: Well, I think that's it, Cody, is, is when you see, so interestingly, obviously, the, the name Crusader has two meanings, That the, the one being you know, somebody who participated in the uh, medieval campaigns and then the other is somebody, a uh, social justice warrior, so to speak. And, um, and for people locally, notwithstanding our whole brand telling a story about the first historically, People locally have always seen this as something um, uh, uh, more akin to the second. So uh, we've, you know, we've got some charities that we do work with. Um, City Mission, we do some pretty cool work with, and if you speak to the CEO at the City Mission, he's always seen us as second version um, as inspiring and um, and connected and um, and really part of the community. And so the, the name actually. Does in, in the top of the South Island, the name means something different to people here than what it might mean elsewhere, and potentially also the way we've communicated it historically as well. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty special it's a pretty special club, and when you go through the processes that we've been through, you, you do come out the other end. And one of the things that has been sort of quite interesting for the brand agency that we've been dealing with is. How universal and consistent the messaging is. So everybody they've spoken to, um, local fans, sponsors, um, uh, other parts, other stakeholders, locally, internationally, they all get the same thing about our values. Um, and so it, it's quite fascinating that there's when they represent their information back to us, uh, everybody nods furiously. So uh, <laughs> even that process in of itself is. Is quite um, enabling because it says, "Oh yes, we, we now know a little bit more about who we are, where we come from, what we're about." So um, yeah, that, that process has been very, very helpful.
0: That's fantastic because that's a big disconnect that you tend to see. Organizations that go through this process, and 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 again, we're kind of in this start with why generation where every organization knows they need to have these things, these mission statements and values and, and all that sort of stuff. But you often kind of look at them and go, that isn't really your organization. You know, yeah. the, I was on Wells Fargo's um, vision statement and, and you just kind of look at it. And I think integrity is one of them. And I'm like, that's not the the version of your organization that we've seen show up. And you probably shouldn't have to have integrity as a, as one of your core values. It, <laughs> that's, that's also a bizarre one, but yeah, that must be um, to not have that disconnect and have other people be able to actually regurgitate your values to you. Like that's, that's the epitome of, of culture when you have that.
1: Yeah. And it's, um, you know, the results were um, yeah, quite astounding. It's that they were, we a corporate, strategy work about two years ago and one of the challenges with it was it was still very engaging I think it'll get re-informed by this process that we've been through because we probably learned more through this process than we did uh, running a, a strategy session ourselves so yeah. we've you know we've got some values set on our website and that and they're, they're not far off um, th- th- it, there's probably less of them that mean more to us is what we now know and um, and you know this—the this sense of um, uh, uh, sort of social justice, piece or, or um, wanting to be inspire others to be the best they can be. You know those things are—they're are, um, taken very, very seriously by the players and the management and the staff uh, here now. And and I think when you talk to the alumni of the club but they also feel very, very strongly about it as well. So, um, yeah, furiously nodding in agreement, generally speaking through this process. So it's been very, very enabling.
0: I'm sure. So this show and, and the book that I wrote, you know, they're about what businesses can learn from, you know, the people processes that we use in pro sports, how we recruit, how we, build culture like we're talking about leadership and high performance and and for you you know i know you've been involved in rugby but essentially you're an outsider now as the ceo of of the crusaders one of the glamour franchises uh, in the sport you know i'd love your thoughts on what that process looked like and and what you've learned along the way
1: so it's one of those things cody isn't it that you um... Uh, when I was in business, I often used the Crusaders as a uh, as a vehicle to tell stories in business settings. so uh, I, I ran a region in Australia um, at one stage when I was working for a bank and um, and and I used to use the uh, um, the stories from here and in fact, when there was a couple of uh, uh, coaches who were over on professional development in Brisbane at the time, I, I grabbed them and 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 used them to tell their stories of what they'd been doing and, and why and how. And so I've always personally seen quite a strong link. When I first got here, one of the things that some of the staff would say to me was that their business is about people, <laughs> i.e. the Crusaders is about people. Mm-hmm. And they wondered whether or not banking was about people. Um, but but this when you come back to this cultural stuff and this this uh, sort of this manic optimism that, that I, I've talked about that Razor has. But one of the things that it reminded me of was an experience I had when I um, I watched a, a branch manager coaching one of their staff members uh, on a sales interaction and they were giving this feedback and asking about the number of products they'd sold and, and how profitable would it be for the bank and those sorts of things. And, and the regional manager, while I was observing, popped in and, and asked the question, If that customer had been your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, your auntie, your uncle, somebody you loved and cared about, would it have gone differently? And the banker responded, obviously I would have done this, I would have done that, I would have done these things. So going back to your integrity comment about Wells Fargo, that they would have acted with integrity and and care and respect. And um, the the, the irony is the the financial results for the bank would have been better because they would have sold more products that would have had more stability, The customer would have been in a better situation, but it was a very people-orientated process that had very easily become turned into financial results and widgets and and productivity and, uh, and performance. Uh, but actually, that's the bit that is so similar between sports. So when you hear a Razor uh, talk to players or when you hear some of the staff here talk about why they do the work they do, It's much more those sorts of stories that they're Mm utilising, unashamedly being people-focused and orientated. Still getting results, but unashamedly people-focused. And I think that's the key difference I've seen is that story that that I've just told you, I've used it a few times professionally when I was in the profession, but in hindsight, nowhere near as many. I should have told that story to every single person I met every day. And then maybe that would have made – we wouldn't have had Royal Commissions of Inquiry and Financial Services in Australia. Maybe we wouldn't have had Wells Fargo moments as if we'd started with that people orientation and that sort of caring servant leadership perspective. All the while I think comes from, um, it's the same. Sport and business are the same. We just sometimes convince ourselves that they're a little bit different.
0: Yeah, it's something that I come up against a, a little bit, you know, I, I travel around and speak. And you know, again, I, I speak in sporting anecdotes, A, because I just see the world that way anyway, but then also B, I 100% agree with you. There is really no difference, but it, it's interesting to, yeah, watch people kind of look at sport and and look at the rules. So, you know, it's a, it's a finite game, uh, you know, the rules are known, the competitor is known, you know, you're training full time and business, you know, you know, there's no rules necessarily and maybe some regulation, but for the most part, you know, a lot of things are unknown, blah, blah, blah. So if you look at it from a pure system perspective, they are quite different, but I, I just, I implore so many people to look at it the way that you've just described is they're just, they're both people games. And, and I, I don't actually think we've done a good job of, converting the lessons from sport because we're talking about a hundred plus years of learnings for how teams operate and how to motivate and lead people and, and build dynamic cultures that, you know, represent a region or represent, you know, a, a country. And there's there's a wealth of knowledge sitting there around people processes that now that business has had to move towards that focus on people. I think there's just this bank of knowledge sitting right there. And and so I've kind of committed myself to, to do what you said. I want to tell, tell every me. single person that mm. I speak to, I'm like, we should be looking at this stuff and don't look at the game. Look at the people processes behind the game because you're right that the coaching knowledge on its own is, is vast, let alone everything else that comes on the back of it you know, how we assess talent and and even just the meaning of high performance. Like I gave a talk in, in Scotland recently, you know, why isn't the HR department called the high performance department? High performance is just setting people up for success, mm, mm. pure and simple. And, and there are so many lessons there that I think we can draw from.
1: Yeah, Cody, the thing I've noticed about, one of the things I've noticed about coming here is we will use very similar processes and instruments and artifacts and, Things like that in our day to day um, will tend to use a, a cheaper version. <laughs> um, so psychometric so testing is a classic example. We use a, a pretty sort of a rough and ready process here, but but it's adopted and it's thoroughly throughout the organisation so that people understand uh, they're more empathic and understanding of people that who are not like themselves and in my professional experience, we would spend you know, thousands, many thousands of dollars on the same processes, but then they would be dropped in the bottom drawer. Uh, and so, so the processes are, are not dissimilar. Um, it's just that, that they're really, really well accepted. And, um, and, and I agree with you. I think this, this piece, you start with people. In the end, in business, if you want to inspire your team to get the best out of them, we're all talking about storytelling now. Well, this is some of the best places where you get stories from. And, uh, and we know it works, but we absolutely know it works.
0: That's the thing. It's been validated and it's mm. been validated over and over. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the other piece that I, I like to talk about is that, you know, it has been quality tested. So, you, mm. you know, everyone always says, well, where's the data? And, and the data is that, you know, the golden state warriors have won, three titles out of the last five and and you can actually see it play out in front of your face in the public domain, Mm. Um, which is why, yeah, I I think there is just so many great examples that that we can draw on from all of the different people processes. It's not just leadership and culture. You can dig really deep down if you want. I know we've got to get you out of here. You got to go and be the CEO of an organization, but uh, before I let you go, you know, away from rugby and, and sport and uh, and leadership, what are you interested in at the moment? What you know? What are you learning about? It could be the history of pianos, or the flat Earth, or JFK conspiracy <laughs> theories. Are you uh, are you deep? In probably it the at
1: the moment. probably the antithesis of the flat Earth Society, um, or or flat Earth is probably the thing. So we recently had uh, Professor Brian Cox, who, who's done uh, a lot of. Uh, he did a BBC series. A few other things. He was recently here in in Christchurch, and um, and I dragged my wife along to his live event, and he talked about um how how black holes are made and the science behind them, and that recent um that that, that recent photograph that was taken. And so I I, I love learning about the universe. I, I I don't know anything about it, um, but I love um you know watching um movies about them, reading as much as I can, uh, trying to get people to explain to me. Einstein's theory of relativity, and still not str- and still struggling with it, and and understanding concepts of space time. But the, the the fascinating, the scale and the size, and and um, and then thinking about uh, what does that mean for the planet? You know, you think about um, yes, there's billions and trillions of um, opportunities for light planets here. Our capacity to travel to them is probably fairly remote, and um, so. That this one that we've got at this point in time, probably it's the best thing we could do is make the most of it. And I think that's the more I, I, I study this stuff or, or watch and read about it, the more I realise how important the places that we've got here today is. So, yeah, that's what gets me excited outside of footy and, and leadership.
0: It's still Sunday afternoon for me, and I was going to go and watch Netflix after this anyway, so I think I'm going to go and watch a a universe documentary.
1: You've converted me. (laughs) Well, well, I think Brian Cox, if you can find anything with Brian Cox, he's quite an entertaining person, makes it very accessible, uh, the the stuff, so, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Done. Brian, you've got a new fan. Colin, this has been amazing. I could speak to you for, for hours on end, mate, but for people that want to follow along with the Crusaders and then also you, Where can they find you?
1: So, uh, Crusaders.co.nz. We're based in Christchurch. Um, Our headquarters is Rugby Park in the centre of Christchurch. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter as uh, Colin Ansbridge, and you'll you'll find uh, uh, our our Facebook page for Crusaders um, uh, BNZ Crusaders. You'll find the Facebook page there. Some fantastic. Uh, video clips and uh, and a little bit about the club and, and plenty of announcements so so any of those areas and you'll find a bit more about the Crusaders
0: Wonderful mate planning on coming to New Zealand next year uh, probably after the International Cup for Aussie Rules so I'll, I'll definitely come in for a visit
1: But mate that would be outstanding make sure you do we love having people here you'll you'll find something that you'll be able to teach us um, and you won't know you've done it and um, and you'll go away and we'll sit down after and say did you When he asked that question, that was quite interesting. It happens to us a lot here. So we love having people in here, mate.
0: Wonderful, mate. Looking forward to it. Thanks again, Colin, for your time. Um, Really glad we could connect for the show and, and, yeah, looking forward to catching up.
1: Cheers, Cody. Thanks, mate.